This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, truth seekers. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. I appreciate you so much for joining us this week. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This right here is episode 163, entitled Mark's High Human Christology in chapters 2 through 3. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will continue to work through the Gospel of Mark in order to deliberately seek out the highest and most exalted things said about Jesus. Our hope is that we can examine and better understand these passages, particularly the ones that convince others that Jesus is not a human being, but rather is Yahweh himself. In doing so, we aren't going to resort to our own favorite proof text within Mark, but rather making a deliberate approach to look at all the evidence in order that we can take the entirety of Mark into account as we try to summarize his own Christology. So we're not just looking at our favorite passages. We're going to go out of our way to look at the most difficult and exalted things that are said about Jesus. We want to be able to take all of the verses into account, not just proof text and cherry pick our own passages. What sort of picture will we get of Jesus Christ as we examine the most exalted things said about him in Mark chapters 2 through 3? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the authorized Lord of the Sabbath. This is the final story in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. So what do we have here? We have yet another controversy story that ends with a declaration of Jesus' authority and a self-proclaimed Christological position. It's very interesting that as Jesus is going about inaugurating the reign of God, many people stop and they ask, why is it that Jesus 
and his disciples are doing what they're doing. And Jesus responds, gives them an answer, and he gives a little tip about who he actually is. Now, in the first century, there were differing opinions on what constituted, quote-unquote, work on the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20 just says that you should refrain from doing work, but many people would like to know exactly what constituted work, what is lawful, and what is forbidden. Now, the Mishnah, which is a collection of authoritative rabbinic Jewish writings that we have from the year 200, says that the sort of behavior that we see Jesus and his disciples doing, which is picking grain on the Sabbath, is actually, on their definition, considered work. But the way that the Pharisees and their opinions that are contained within the Mishnah define work is not actually the consensus opinion. There are a variety of ways that work was defined within the first century. Of course, it's clear here that Jesus and his disciples do not agree with how the Pharisees define work. We can see that Jesus has authorized his disciples to pick grain. Jesus does not rebuke them or say that they are in error. But in the story, when questioned about this behavior, Jesus responds in a very important way that even biblical Unitarians tend to overlook. Jesus recalls how David broke the rules of Torah regarding the consecrated bread in order that he may eat and in order that his followers may eat. So Jesus seems to think that the livelihood of human beings receiving their basic needs, especially those that are hungry, are more important than Sabbath observance. And so what Jesus does is that he compares his situation with his followers to David's situation and David's followers. In doing so, Jesus likens himself unto David. Who is David? Well, at the time of that particular story, David was the anointed king-in-waiting, which suggests that Jesus viewed himself as the new David, who is also a king-in-waiting, who was anointed for that messianic role. The typology suggests that Jesus viewed himself and the authority he possessed with a high-ranking human being who was anointed for the position of kingship. So stated differently, when Jesus wanted to explain the behavior of his disciples, he compares himself to a royal figure, an anointed figure, a king-in-waiting figure, David. And Jesus suggests that since David could do it, then Jesus can do it as well. And if David's followers can eat this bread, then Jesus' followers can also eat this particular grain. So Jesus then responds, after the connection with David, by saying that humanity does not serve the Sabbath. It's actually the other way around. Sabbath was made for humanity. In light of this fact, 
Jesus states that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So the first thing we need to note here is that Jesus calls himself a human being. He calls himself the Son of Man. And remember, it's not just any old Son of Man. It's the Son of Man with the definite article in Greek. It's a Son of Man that Mark assumes that his readers would know, recognize, and understand. This again recalls Daniel chapter 7, where in verses 13 through 14 we have the Ancient of Days, which clearly represents God, is someone who authorizes this Son of Man figure, and the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man dominion, glory, and kingship. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14. We'll return to Daniel chapter 7 later in this episode, so it's important that we keep that particular mindset on the back burner. So Jesus here is claiming to be the Son of Man, which is an authorized human being, a human being that has been authorized by God. He's not just a mere human being or a mere man. He is a highly enabled human being, a highly authorized human being. So if the Sabbath is made for human beings, then certainly the divinely authorized human being, the Son of Man, has authority all over the Sabbath, especially when it comes to meeting the needs of other human beings who are hungry. But Jesus is certainly able to allow his disciples, whom he represents, to fulfill their needs when they are hungry on the Sabbath, because the Sabbath was made for humanity, not the other way around. Now, Jesus claims that the human being, namely the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath. And it's this particular phrase, Lord of the Sabbath, that is latched onto by many interpreters to conclude that Jesus is claiming to be Lord, namely Yahweh. Could it be that Jesus here is claiming to be Yahweh in a subtle way? Since one of the ways that Lord, the Greek noun Kyrios, is used in the Septuagint is to refer to the divine name. Well, I think that that's unlikely in this particular instance, and here is why. The suggestion that Lord is to be understood as Yahweh would mean that the phrase Lord of the Sabbath is Yahweh of the Sabbath. And the phrase Yahweh of the Sabbath is not even a biblical phrase used in the Hebrew Bible or in the Septuagint. That wouldn't be anything that the listeners would have latched onto and said, ah, he's claiming to be this particular person from this passage in the Hebrew Bible. There is no phrase Yahweh of the Sabbath. So it seems very unlikely that by regarding himself as Lord, that he is making a claim to being one and the same as Yahweh. We all know that Lord is a very flexible word that could refer to a high-ranking person. It could just refer to sir. It could refer to a highly authorized human being. It could refer to Yahweh, but it doesn't have to refer to Yahweh. Lord is just a title for a superior person. And Jesus clearly here is the master of the Sabbath, but he says so as a human being, as the Son of Man. 
and the Son of Man is someone who is distinct from God. He is distinct from the Ancient of Days. But the Son of Man is one who is authorized by God himself. That's why he can claim this title, the title of a superior, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Master of the Sabbath, because as the Son of Man, he has been correctly authorized by God. And so, Jesus is saying that his interpretation of what constitutes work on the Sabbath is actually correct, while the Pharisees and their interpretation is incorrect. And Jesus can do so because of the authority that he possesses, which he received from God. Let's move on to our second point. Point number two, Jesus authorized to redefine Israel. We're moving now into Mark chapter 3. Let's start in verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. That's Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. Now, this particular passage is not really latched on to by biblical Unitarians, but it is something that demonstrates that Jesus has this authority. Jesus gives Peter a new name. Jesus summons these people and he commissions them with authority. One could very well make the argument that the person in the Old Testament who gives people a new name, like giving Abram a new name or commissioning people like Moses and Isaiah, is none other than Yahweh himself. What is this sort of behavior saying about the person that Mark thinks that Jesus is. Well, it's quite clear that the whole scene is demonstrating the authority that Jesus possesses. If you look at the wording here, you could see that Jesus is someone who is highly authorized. He's able to summon these 12, not just ask them to be here, he summons them. And of course, they came to him in obedience and once they have arrived, he appoints them. And he appoints them to do three particular things. One, he appoints them to be with him. Two, he appoints them so that he can send them out to preach. And three, he appoints them to have authority to cast out demons. So we can see there that Jesus is sharing his own authority with these specially selected human apostles. And of course, this is the authority that Jesus himself has already received from God, namely as the authorized Son of Man. So the authorized Son of Man now gathers 12 human followers, and he authorizes them to share in his ministry. 
Jesus is going out and ministering, and now they are going to go out with him. Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and now they are going to go out and preach that same message. Jesus has been casting out demons, and now they are going to go and cast out demons. Now, Jesus already referred to himself as the Son of Man multiple times in the narrative. We're only in chapter 3, and that's happened multiple times. If we recall Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is the representative of the faithful people of God who both share in the kingdom and oppose the chaotic beast. That's what we see in Daniel chapter 7. These human beings who are represented by the human Son of Man are actually going to share in Jesus' ministry. Jesus appoints the twelve to be with him, just as the Son of Man in Daniel 7 represents humanity. The twelve will go out and they'll preach the gospel of the kingdom, which the Son of Man has brought near with his actions and evangelism of his ministry. And, of course, they are going to cast out demons. And this seems to really fit in the context of Daniel 7, where the faithful people of God who are represented by the Son of Man are opposing the evil, chaotic beast that I mentioned at the beginning of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 kind of envisions this cosmic battle between the chaotic beast and the Son of Man who represents the faithful people of God. So what do we have here? We have Jesus initiating and authorizing these faithful human beings to share in his kingdom ministry where they fight against the chaotic forces of evil. They cast out demons. They preach the reign of God. So the summoning and the sharing of authority with the twelve further points to Jesus as the authorized son of man that is, the authorized human being, who is empowered by God. So it's a passage that we could spend some more time looking at and thinking about, and I want to encourage people to read that alongside Daniel chapter 7 to see if some of those connections would have made sense to Mark's original readers. Let's move on to our third and final point. Point number three Jesus redefines the family around the Father. We have this interesting story at the end of Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And so Jesus here, in yet again a controversy story, is going to demonstrate his authority and say something about why he is doing what he's doing in his ministry. Jesus redefines the family from direct lineal descent 
to association by behavior, namely to those who are performing and obeying the will of God. And in doing so, Jesus is restructuring the family unit. And this is something that you could make the argument that only God can do. God created the family. God defined the family. God is the one that said that there is a husband and a wife and children and created that family structure. Is Jesus here doing something that only God can do? The way in which Jesus words this particular controversy story indicates that he actually has a particular belief about this God whose will should be performed and obeyed by the redefined family. Jesus actually believes that this God is the Father. In order to make this point, we actually have to look at the other places where Jesus defines God within the Gospel of Mark. And the way that he defines God is how, of course, he expects his disciples to define God. So I'm going to look at four particular passages to make this point. Mark chapter 8 and verse 38 has Jesus saying, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father. Mark 8.38 Now notice there, the Son of Man comes in the glory not of the Father, but of his Father. God is the Father of the Son of Man. The Son of Man, therefore, is the Son of God. So the Son of Man defines God as his Father in Mark 8.38. And we can see much of the same in Mark 11.25, where Jesus says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who is in heaven, will also forgive your transgressions. Mark 11.25. Jesus there teaches his disciples, those that are following him, this redefined family, that their new father is the God in heaven, your father who is in heaven. So Jesus regards God as his father, and Jesus teaches his disciples that God is their father. We can see much the same in Mark 13, 32, where Jesus says, Of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Mark 13, 32. Here Jesus defines God as the Father alone, as only one particular person. Jesus distinguishes himself from that Father. And the Father, of course, is the Father of that Son, whom Jesus clearly is. So Jesus says God is the Father, and it is the Father alone. And of course, just as Jesus taught his disciples how to pray in Mark 11.25, Jesus himself prays in Mark 14.36. He was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Mark 14.36. So even Jesus prays and calls God Father. So by looking at those four passages, Mark 8.38, 11.25, 13.32, and 14.36, we can pretty clearly conclude that Jesus regards God 
as the true father and Jesus teaches his disciples that God is their father as well. And this is critically important. So when Jesus redefines the family, it is around God and doing the will of this God. God here is the father. God is the father alone. And so these new family members don't actually include a father figure. Jesus, whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and brother and sister. He doesn't actually say father because he's reserving father for God alone. The God whose will is being demonstrated and shared by this redefined family. God is the father of Jesus and God is the father of this redefined family because only mothers, brothers, and sisters are mentioned. So Jesus redefines the family to point people to someone other than himself. Jesus is not redefining the family around himself. He's redefining the family around God and those who do the will of God. In doing so, he regards God as the Father, and he distinguishes himself from God. Jesus is not claiming to be this God. He points people to God as the Father. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the Gospel of Mark continues to portray Jesus as the highly authorized Son of God, ushering in the reign of God through his unique role as God's agent. We first noted that Mark uses yet another controversy story to reveal his Christology. Jesus' disciples are accused of breaking the Sabbath by the Pharisees, resulting in a response intended to convey the authority Jesus possessed, which allowed such behavior to be lawful. Jesus recalls how the anointed king-in-waiting, David, and his followers were allowed to eat the consecrated food while they were hungry. In doing so, the anointed Jesus compares himself to David, making Jesus out to be the new David, that is, a royal human being who is highly authorized by God. Jesus further claims to be the Son of Man, the human being who is master over the Sabbath. Second, we observe that the authorized Jesus was able to pass on his authority to twelve others in the appointing of the apostles. The Son of Man who enables other faithful human beings to share in his ministry, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, and to cast out demons, recalls Daniel chapter 7, where the authorized Son of Man is a representative figure for faithful human beings who share in the kingdom and who oppose the chaotic forces of evil. Lastly, we observe that Jesus redefines the family unit around obedience 
to the will of God, specifically around God as the Father. The new family members can be brothers, sisters, and mothers, but they cannot be fathers. This is because Jesus regards God as his Father, and Jesus teaches his disciples that they too should regard God as their Father. This act simultaneously distinguishes Jesus from God, as well as defines God as the Father alone. Thus far in the Gospel of Mark, we have many extremely high things to say about Jesus, many exalted things to say about Jesus, but Jesus remains a human being, a bona fide member of the human race. It would be inaccurate to say that Jesus is a mere man. This is high Christology, but it is high human Christology. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Please be sure to look forward to our next episode, where we will continue to explore the Christology of the Gospel of Mark and take a look at how it is that Jesus has control over the wind and the seas. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. If you would like to offer a donation, please check out the PayPal site that is linked with this podcast. Be sure also to check us out on YouTube where we have short, catchy videos about these very important truths. And I also want to give a shout out and thanks to our producer and editor, Dustin Williams, for his fine work each and every week. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.